Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 139. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 139 you're listening to, and 139 I'm recording, in case I thought I was recording something else. It's, you know, I always tell you what the session number is in case you're confused, but I could be confused as well. But uh, I've, I've, believe me, I've been confused plenty of times recording the show. <laughs> but I'm not confused today. It is session 139 I am recording, and you are listening to, which is great. So welcome. Our guest today is Mr. Langston Massengale, who's been working in recording studios for the last 24 years, starting at age 16 at his uncle's studio in New Jersey. And uh, it was in uh, 2009, he helped start JJ Audio Mics. And in 2014, he invented what would become the core technology of a product you may know called Zulu. And it was in 2015 that Handsome Audio was born, along with partner Todd Levine and this product Zulu that I speak of was released that year, this year, actually, not that year, this year. Now, Langston still owns a recording studio called Narrative Audio, which is based in Syracuse, New York, where he still produces and records artists. So yeah, Langston Massengale coming up. Langston was a referral from our, our friend, Alan Evans and their friends. So uh, yeah, Al said, I think you'd have a great conversation with Langston. You should consider having him on. And so after doing a little digging on him, as we do, you know, a little Googling, a little looking at the dossier, right? Uh, I said, hey, Langston, come on board. Come and join us. So, um, yeah, Langston Massengale coming up here. Been watching a little Netflix. No surprise there. You know, with the recent passing of Glenn Campbell, I finally took the time to uh, watch the Glenn Campbell story on uh, Netflix called All Be Me, which really kind of documents Glenn's diagnosis with Alzheimer's and eventually... Um, the 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 tour that followed the diagnosis, which I got to hand it to Glenn and, and his family for, you know, going out on tour once you had that diagnosis. That's a that's a challenge. So anyhow, yeah, it's it's a sad story. Uh, Glenn was a incredibly talented man. And uh, what a history in music. So I encourage you to check it out. It's called All Be Me. It's on Netflix. Also, I've been watching a lot of this uh, Access TV. I don't know if you, where you are, you have Access TV, but uh, it's, you know, it's a lot of musical shows. And one of the shows that I caught this past weekend uh, was that was really fascinating was Marley, which was, a, of course, a, a documentary on Bob Marley and his diagnosis with cancer and, uh, you know, eventual uh, demise. And, and, and that, too, it, itself was uh, very uplifting in many ways, but very sad, of course, at, at the end. We all know how that turned out, but uh, very fascinating. It's funny, as I get older and <clears throat> I dig into shows like this, artists that I never really paid too close attention to just because I was caught up in whatever music I was listening to. And it's not like I didn't like Bob Marley or didn't like Glenn Campbell. I just, you know, that was that was a part of music that was, you know, filling the background of life. And I never really dug into those artists personally. Because as a, as a youth, I was so caught up in the new wave of British heavy metal that uh, uh, listening to Bob Marley and Glenn Campbell was not on my radar. As I 
get older and really learn to appreciate all forms of music. Uh, it's interesting now that we have such, you know, great shows to document these things. And these two shows really uh, are great examples of that. So, uh, yeah, check it out. Marley on Access TV and Glenn Campbell on uh, Glenn Campbell's I'll Be Me on Netflix. Great shows. Uh, so... You know, we are, of course, on iTunes, Stitcher, and Android, and uh, many other areas you can find us, of course, iHeartRadio. Uh, looks like we will continue to be on SoundCloud. I was in question of that just because of the news. I kept hearing about SoundCloud, but it looks like uh, investors just approved what is, I guess, categorized as a life-saving $170 million emergency fund to keep the company going. So for now, we will still be up there. Uh, but of course, if you listen on iTunes, uh, I implore you to head on over to iTunes and give us a rating, you know, uh, if you have something nice to say, of course, if you have something negative to say, don't even bother <laughs> just, uh, you know, have, uh, take those nice comments and, uh, head on over to iTunes and give us a nice, uh, a nice thumbs up there, a good rating that would be appreciated. And I mentioned this before over at gearslets.com, we are sponsoring the, Subforum known as Audio Life. And there is a forum on their forum within a forum, subforum. You know what I'm saying? Under Audio Life, there is uh, Life Hacks. And uh, that's an area that I spend a little time in myself. Anyhow, uh, check it out. Uh, there is a, a gentleman over there by who goes by AKM. He's posted something about uh, uh, curious about people's morning routines. And that's something that we do talk about here on the show. I've been asking that a lot uh, of our guests lately. And I'm curious, you know, if you've got a certain morning routine, um, you know, either post it up there on gearsluts.com or uh, send it to me at Matt at workingclassaudio.com. Uh, always fascinated by what people do because, you know, for me, you know, making the bed, that just seems like I do that and I feel like I've conquered at least one thing in the day. I know that sounds ridiculous, but yeah, do that. And then it just starts to snowball from there. So there you go. Check it out. Audio life over at uh, gearslets.com. And just a reminder, August 31st is around the corner. That's when uh, Universal Audio's Apollo Rack Dream Studio promo comes to an end. So once again, if you're planning on buying an Apollo, get on it and uh, get those get those free plugins uh, that they're offering up. So Make sure and do that. You could check out details at uaudio.com, of course. And remember when I said I, I needed a desk, well, and I'm still looking for a desk and all that a whole bit. Well, anyhow, I am still looking for a desk, but I think I've narrowed it down to two. And uh, I'll let you know ultimately what that is. I'm going to be making a decision soon. And once I, you know, order the desk and it comes in and I get it set up, I'll post some pictures and, you know, talk about it on the show, of course. I know, so exciting. The new desk always exciting. Anyhow, um, let's get down with it. Let's, uh, let's talk to Langston Massengale. Cause I think that, uh, that's a, a, an exciting conversation to have. So, uh, here we go. Langston Massengale here on the working class audio podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast, man. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. We can definitely thank our mutual friend, Al Evans. Oh, yeah. I don't know if Alan's he, awesome. Does he like to be called Al? I know a lot of people that do call him that, but I just call him Alan. And it's one Alan, of those things okay. where I've never been corrected. <laughs> so it's uh, it's just the way that I know him. Mm -hmm. You know, he tours under that name. 
but I, I I don't have any nicknames for him or anything I, like that. I just call him Alan. I tend to shorten people's names. My youngest son is named Emerson, so I just call him M. That's a cool name. But uh, Langston's a very cool name. I can't see yeah. calling you Lang, though. Thank you. Yeah, see, my name kind of doesn't shorten well. So what I do is just turn it into initials. So... What I do is when I write people emails from Handsome Audio, I just call, I just say L. And then everyone's like, thanks, L, because my name just gets butchered. Like, I'll tell people my name and they'll be like, you know, Lancelot, it's just great to have you here. And it's like, Lancelot? And it just sounds like something you'd name a pimp. <laughs> you know, like only pimps are getting named Lancelot these days. And it's century, like, it's not a name you give a boy, you know, if you expect him to be respected and admired, you know, it's just not the thing to do anymore. So... Um, Langston shortens to L pretty easily. And a lot of people call me L. Yeah. You know, so. Well, cool. It's funny because I think before Al said anything, I had come across the Zulu analog simulation product that you make. I don't know if that's the proper way to introduce it, but essentially I had seen that webpage before. And then he said, you got to talk uh -huh. to Langston. He's an inventor. He's a producer. He's an engineer. Like he named all these things. And I said, I'm sold. You had me at, at inventor. I'm in. <laughs> well, thank you. So let's start with what little uh, I know about the Zulu, because that's an interesting product on a number of levels. And, yes. And it kind of differentiates you from many other guests in that not many of the guests on Working Class Audio have a product like that. So Tell me about that and tell me how that came about. I started recording music in a family member studio back in the early 90s, around 93 to be exact. The thing is, is in that studio, they were using Tascam machines, like the one-inch and two-inch machines. And as well, I was getting some exposure to the cassette Porter studio stuff. And one of the things that kind of ingrained itself into my cognitive uh, connection to the analog studio process was that tape had a sound, tape had a behavior, and it had almost like a self-awareness to it, right? So when I began tinkering with different circuitry and different passive designs to make what now be is known as Zulu, I had heard many other things like plugins, I had heard hardware, and no offense to anybody else, everybody has pretty much attacked this problem. This is like one of those ongoing debates in digital now is uh, that we are in this great, wonderful, limitless uh, platform of recording audio, and yet people still keep pushing backwards against the advent of crystal clear recording, right? And they keep trying to find ways to murk it up, to muddy it up, to dirty it up, to give them something they're more familiar with, right? And part of the issue with that is people go for some brute force solution to the problem. And when I even had something like a Tascam 38, I'd come across one on eBay one year for like 400 bucks and I bought it. It was a great machine. It had a reel of Ampex 456 still on it, still pretty good calibration on most of the eight channels that were there and the eight tracks. And this deck did stuff that at each end of the spectrum, you know, at each extreme. So you had the less driven, less aggressive side of the spectrum where it would do something pretty cool, but the noise floor was just too bad to really use it that way, but it was a good sound. And then you had it at the other end of the spectrum where when you abused it, something musical and almost uh, beautifully ugly happened when you would overdrive this machine. And so it kind of occurred to me that, you know, if somebody was ever going to invent uh, a tape simulator, it was going to require more than just tape in the heads, 
and the electronics, right? There had to be some connection to the outside world. You know, for example, whenever you use a machine like a Tascam or an Ampex or a Studer or whatever you have around, you're using it with everything else you got, too. You know, it's kind of like a last-ditch effort when you record to tape. You know, you, you use a compressor to get above the noise floor of the machine. You use an equalizer to kind of beat and cheat the pre-emphasis and de-emphasis circuitry that's in a tape deck so that you don't get uh, hiss but you also want to beat hiss, right? So one of the ways people do it is they preemphasize the tape. You know, they boost treble. Sometimes they want uh, some of the gel to happen in the saturation coefficient of how the tape operates at its operating level. So you might boost a little bit of low end even more to make the tape saturate a little earlier based on the collective harmonic character of the source, right? But that all creates a relationship between the equipment that's in front of the machine and even more so what's after it, right? Mm -hmm. And so most of these approaches were more of making it like a singular self-sustaining system where the saturation does this under these parameters and that's it. It doesn't matter what happened before. It doesn't matter what happens after, right? Hmm. And with analog equipment, a lot of what you see, you know, people say, if I plug this mic into this mic preamp and this mic preamp into this compressor, well, in the real world, these devices on some level see each other through those connections, right? And tape machines are no exception to that rule. They're the same way. You know, they have surrounding electronics, they have the actual tape process, and all of those things marry together to make something that's harmonically rich and unique. And each situation creates a myriad of variables. So, my approach to Zulu was, what can I do to kind of harness those happy accidents in a controlled way, but at the same time, let that untamed aspect of what analog is still reign, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I did was make it where I didn't follow traditional techniques to make equipment. You know, you have uh, all these designs where people buffer things so that no equipment affects the other piece and you don't have these things. And what I realized was that by allowing equipment to show its true colors to each other, you were actually reinventing what each piece of gear was for, right? So that your microphone preamp became more than just a way to amplify sound. It became a way to affect change in other parts of your chain. By eliminating the technology you normally use to eliminate those scenarios, we discovered that a lot of gear has hidden tones inside of it because we were harnessing those harmonic coefficients as part of the way to sculpt sound, right? And that's really what clicks in my head with Zulu, you know, and with tape is that we have these controls on there that on the surface are just tone controls or dynamic controls or saturation controls, but they also are making it where Zulu talks to what's hooked up to it. And those things also talk to Zulu. And that became more of what I felt was more akin to how a record producer would look at a tape machine. He or she looks at it as a piece of equipment, but also as a musical instrument. You know, there's a great phrase that people throw around all the time in conversations that the room is an instrument in a recording studio. You know, like my heart belongs in the world of tracking musicians and dealing with them and producing their records, right? So like a space becomes part of the album. It isn't just where it happens. It's actually like the the other member of the band. You know, people talk about that with Sound City and the record plant and mm -hmm. all these are the great rooms and recorded history that like those rooms made those albums what they were just as much as the person behind the console. So I look at all equipment that way and that kind of means that if I'm going to embrace that philosophy, at least personally, I should be making gear that 
welcomes other gear to be touching it and talking to it rather than I'm here, my sound is specifically my sound, and I don't want you affecting me. But old equipment has a mind of its own. And I'm kind of bringing that back to the table in that conversation is that that DI box that's sitting on your desk there that you don't use unless somebody cuts bass, right, is now another tool that you can use to shape tones. You know, that mic preamp that sits idle at Mixdown because you're not recording anything can now be a way for you to generate some really cool sound that normally you wouldn't be able to harness digitally. And there's no other piece of gear that does that because it's not designed that way. And that all revolves around my philosophy of, again, making equipment into instruments instead of just these pieces of technology that we look at and we look at them as sort of, you know, uh, soulless shapes. You know, these things have new purposes in, in the world that we live in now, simply because I think personally that even though digital is fantastic as far as the recall, the unlimited amounts of times you can record a take, it still lacks the soul that we miss in these old recordings. And so we keep searching for that, right? And so this is like my first step in beginning that journey, and that's with Zulu. What's behind the name? What's the story there? Zulu is named after the general. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a famous general. When I was a kid, there was a movie about him called Shaka Zulu. And he was uh, feared, respected, and brilliant, right? And he was unique in the way that he approached combat and also the way he governed. And when I thought about tape in the context of the modern sense, like here we are now and tape is like a dead technology, right? It's been abandoned on many levels. It's not a very popular way to record for most people, mainly because of the expense, the hassle, the discipline involved, the discipline of the staff using it, right? But it's a rebellious approach to recording audio too. It's just like J.J. Abrams when he still cuts the 35 millimeter stock and he records Star Wars that way, right? Some huge venture. He says, I like film because I like the way film looks. I don't care about the inconvenience. This is fantastic, right? Well, for me, people that record to analog tape, they're rebels, right? Shaka Zulu stood up against the greatest empire that ever graced the planet, the British Empire, right? At least one of the greatest, one of the most advanced, one of the most well-crafted and well-trained military forces on the planet. And yet here's this guy in the middle of South Africa fending off the British with spears and sandals, okay? And, seal and shields made out of leather. And... He's given the British a hard time. And I look at tape like that, like it's the, it's the disruptor, right? And that's what Shaka Zulu represented to me, was like that rebellious spirit of the analog-focused producer that is saying, you know what, digital's great, but you know what? It's still missing what I want as a record producer. And I don't care if you tell me that I just don't know what I'm doing with digital. I can take a rock and skip it across a river. So if you give me a photocopy and it sinks and you tell me my technique sucks, I still can get the rock, dude. You know? <laughs> and so that's how I feel about analog tape. Like, you don't have to get a degree in computer science to know how to hit signal on that thing and get back and get back the splat on a snare drum. It's pretty simple. It's like, hit it in the sweet spot, it'll always do it, right? And with digital, it's a constant moving target for a lot of us. Like, we just can't adapt right? And so this is not even a crutch. It's literally giving you back the skill set that you already had, and it's giving you that proper tool to approach it. But again, that's what Shaka Zulu did because he made new spears that were shorter and easier to stab people with. But that's the same thing with Zulu. Hey, stop worrying so much about your levels to tape. This thing will absorb transients, right? You don't have to use some newfangled compressor just to get your levels under control. You don't have to worry about infinite headroom. You can worry about, hey, there actually is headroom and it has a sound. So when you... When you uh, 
go past this operating point, it changes the tone up. It actually gives you a texture to play with. Just like if you bend a guitar string a certain way, the tone changes, right? Sometimes we need those limits and sometimes we need to take on a non-standard approach to things to actually be better creators and better creatives. And Zulu man represents all of that. The Zulu spirit is a big thing in African culture. Obviously, I'm African-American, right? And that is one of the greatest forces in the tales that little black boys and girls get told is like the greatness of this person, right? And so I've repurposed that name to uh, embody the spirit of analog tape, which is also like where a lot of great black music got recorded was on tape, right? And mm -hmm. when those reels were turning, you were getting James Brown, Ray Charles, you were getting Charlie Parker, you know, like these things were happening on tape. And so I kind of want to re reframe and regrasp that. And also, you know, on some level, bring that spirit back into the conversation. You know, there are many different uh, contributors to the American songbook, right? But there's also many great contributors to the American record production book and as well the inventors. And this is my way of just pointing out to like somebody that one day may be like me, a little black kid from the hood that gets strong-armed into the record business. Hey, you don't necessarily have to be a tape jockey. You could build shit. You know, you can, if, if people lack a solution in a recording setting, make a better mic preamp, invent a mic, invent a better way to connect cables together. Like these things are possible for you. And by me putting a name on it, that's Afrocentric, it also kind of puts that earmark in the conversation. Like, Hey, this guy did it. You can too. Right. And again, embodying that rebellious nature, that spirit, that disruption of what the status quo is, all of that is embodied in that phrase. And people love it. Everybody wants to join the tribe. <laughs> your story about uh, Shaka Zulu and how it pertains to your philosophy around the product itself, I think that's great. And I have a, an appreciation for those who are disruptors and those who think outside the box. And to me, what comes to mind, uh, Steve Albini or Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, I, don't yeah. think, I don't think there's any other Steves, but... <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. I have an appreciation for those that push against the current, and uh, I yeah. like that a lot. I know that you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you grew up in Syracuse. Yes, sir. Syracuse, New York. And if I'm correct, you also have an uncle that has a recording studio or had a recording studio. In okay. New Jersey. In New Jersey. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is he much, much older than you? Yeah, I'd say he's about... Gabe was like in his 30s when I started working with him, and I was just a snot-nosed teenager. Okay. He was still a younger, handsome-looking fellow, you know what I mean? But he just didn't age. He had that Peter Pan gene. And... Yeah, I mean, he, he was much smarter and older than I was at the time, but, you know, the difference between 16 and 30 sometimes is not so obvious until you see maturity strike in a 16-year-old's maturity level versus a 30-year-old man is pretty different in the recording setting. So that's why he was boss man and I was the assistant. <laughs> How did he influence you? Well, the way it works with Gabe, right, one of the most important things he ever did for me was he took it away. And what I mean by that is he let me see what a session really looked like. There was like some crazy band in there from Jersey, like, you know, hair whipping back and forth, you know, real hardcore rock music. And he let me see that, you know, and 
see the reaction of the band listening to themselves. And he was great at what he did, man. I mean, his techniques were nuts and people would come to him. And, you know, this is a, uh, it was different for me to see that, to see somebody that, you know, where I grew up, um, there was a lot of diversity in my community, but not when it came to the tech side of things, unfortunately, right? So to see somebody that looked like me being spoken to as if he was the man, you know, and it was in a recording studio. It's the entertainment industry, right? It was it was, it was uplifting and inspiring. And also it made me want to be like him, right? And he took it away. He's just like, okay, now that you see what you could be doing, you can't have it. And I was like, well, what do I got to do to get it back? He's like, you see that book over there on the table? And I was like, yeah. He's like, it's 300 pages long. Read it. Come back to me and recite it to me. Show me what you know, right? And it was the service manual for the studio's deck. And I read that thing from cover to cover to cover to cover over and over again because it just consumed me that I was not going to be shot down. And that thing taught me so much about electronics. It taught me about the discipline that people have that work on equipment, the care that's needed to maintain it. All of those things became part of my upbringing as a recording studio personality, you know, as a, as a recording engineer, as uh, a person that maybe lacked a little bit of humility, like a lot of teenagers do. You know, we lack humility when we're coming up. We think we're great before we even are good. Oh, yeah. And it humbled me. And I mean, that's one of the biggest influences he had on me because after that, I kind of realized I like manuals. <laughs> so <laughs> I used to read the manual for everything before I'd even think about buying it. You know, like if there was some new drum machine, you know, Gabe did a lot of hip hop in his studio too. He did a lot of, uh, you know, dance music that involved drum programming. And he had those Akai MPC 60s there and other Korg, you know, uh, wonderful gadgets and et cetera, et cetera. And so I would just read the manuals on that stuff. And when something new came out, I had to read about it before I'd even put my fingers on it. I used to print the manual out and just go to town on it, you know? What I did is I'd finished that manual, and so I went back to him and showed him the calibration procedure for the studio's deck. What was kind of cool is that uh, in typical old-school fashion, he's like, that's okay. (laughs) 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 You know? Like, you know, I'm like, I took all freaking summer to learn how to do this, and that's okay is your response? He's like, yeah, it's all right. It'll do. You know, when you look up to somebody and you admire them and they kind of shoot you down immediately, depending on your character, you're either going to run away and tuck tail or you're going to be like, all right, now I'm going to get you back. You know? And so what happened is he was teaching me to be competitive, you know, because sometimes your best isn't good enough. And, um, I carry that to this day with me that, uh, even though you think you may be doing the best that you can, there may still be an opportunity for you to do better than that. And, it encourages me to this day to keep pushing myself, to keep exploring new opportunities and options for myself to grow. You know, I'm 40 years old. I turned 40 in May, right? And I still have this thing where I can never stop learning about being a record producer or being a recording engineer. Like, I still feel like there's more for me to learn to the point where I'd be willing to intern for somebody, even at 40 years old. I know that sounds really silly to some people, But if you're 40 years old and you're like me, no matter how good you might think you are, there are people that are still better at it than you. They might even be younger than you, right? So I'm always, always asking questions. Like I am completely a product of the mentorship and support that I've received over the years, either in the recording industry from the people that I've worked for and worked with, 
or in the uh, tech industry, you know, I used to uh, call Tom Reichenbach, God rest his soul. I used to call Tom Reichenbach at Cinemag and sit on the phone with him for hours and talk with him about Transformers. Oliver Arkut, God rest his soul, same way. Just used to find people that knew more than me and just pour myself a cup of coffee and they were willing to share what they knew. That was the difference. Like now I'm that person, even though I kind of feel like I'm not ready to be that person. But at the time, I was just like the little kid, just lapping it up, you know, like, you know, oh, the hysteresis happens like this. And if you shift these values around, kiddo, this is what happens. And ha ha, you know, and I'm just sitting there writing it down like this is good stuff, you know, and that built the the lexicon and the dictionary that's in my head, that encyclopedia that spins around in a circle constantly whenever I look at equipment and where uh, people feel equipment fails them, you know, um, all of those things formed who I am. And it's the same way with Gabriel, you know, like his mentorship, his ability to push me, to know how to push me, to see things in myself that I didn't see in myself. Um, they all influenced me in a million and one levels, you know, and uh, I have pretty much, I know this is going to sound really funny, but all I've really tried to do with Zulu is get back to when I was 16. When I was 16 years old and I started in this and all I really wanted to do was know how to rap. I didn't want to be an engineer. I didn't want to make beats. I just wanted to rhyme, right? And yet that studio had that sound, man. And so I've done everything that I can to develop this device to basically be like that time machine to take me back to 1993. Because huh. that was like, you know, that was a magic time for people my age, you know, because I mean, after a while, there was no more tape. But I got to live with it in a way that most people didn't. You know, I mean, a 16-year-old kid my age that didn't get that experience 10 years later, and they're 26, you know, people were phasing tape out. I don't even know if they were still making Ampex 456 in 2003, but that would have been the age that young man might have got out of college and really got into studios and started to learn how to do stuff. That was when everybody's transitioning away um, completely. You know, they had already done the ADAT shift into digital recording with computers. So if you missed that boat, then that frame of reference was completely missed by you completely. Like you just didn't know, you know, I meet people that are older than me that started making music later than I did on the timeline. And they have like no experience with what tape sounded like on drums or vocals or any of that stuff. They're clueless. I mean, just to, to, to add to this real quick about this, the, how, where you're from does affect where you go when it comes to stuff like art, right? I was at the, uh, I was on a truck for SSL, you know, they did a demo here in my town and they had the Thriller multi-tracks in the truck, right? Like the song Thriller by Michael yeah. Jackson. And they were obviously some kind of transfer from tape to digital, right? And the thing that was amazing to all these young engineers, guys who were fresh out of broadcast school and all of that, was the complete and absolute lack of all those things that you hear when you record yourself at home or even in a modern studio. Like, they were just like, dude, there's like nothing above 12K. There's like no 8K on these lead vocals. It's like, and yet everything fits together so perfectly. And I said, you know, there's a lot more to it than what I'm going to say, but this would not have sounded like this without tape. Like, there's like a arcane lack of detail in those multi-tracks that is gorgeous that just makes so much sense across the entire broadband. And I know what that sounds like because I've heard it 
over and over again. You know, I know what it's like to put a 414 to tape on a female's voice and to expect something back. I mean, a 414 isn't that fun to listen to in the first place, but you know what it's going to do on a woman. And then you add in the component of maybe some decent clean gain staging, and then you throw an analog tape and forget it. Like what you're managing in that point is the performance. You're not managing the audio. And so again, that frames, just like what Gabriel taught me about competitiveness and being studious and being learned so that when you go into a situation, like you always have your brain focused on solving things and fixing things and addressing things as they happen at the speed of sound, you know, all those things frame how I look at the process of recording, but especially when I apply that experience to the process of developing equipment for recording. Langston Massengale here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's take a sponsor break with Audio Technica for a bit, and I'm happy to report some truly excellent news in my world. Uh, that excellent news is, if, if you recall on uh, episode number 127 with Craig Schumacher, I said Craig was in town and he borrowed my AT4047 and took it with him to work on the new Calexico record. Well, he sent it back. I'm so happy. Uh, that mic is amazing. And many people would agree. And if you'd like to check it out, of course, head on over to audio-technica.com. Um, you know, it's just a super versatile mic, and it seems that pretty much anything you put in front of it uh, is captured in an excellent way. So I know that's kind of vague, but you got to just check it out. I've, I've tried out many Audio-Technica microphones. I love many of them. And uh, this one in particular is just one of my favorites, and it's a favorite of many people. So uh, check it out at uh, audio-technica.com. It's the AT4047. If you're looking on the AT's uh, on AT's website, it's uh, uh, listed at six ninety nine for the uh, forty forty seven SV, and uh, for the forty forty seven MP, the multi pattern version, it's eight forty nine. Not a mic that's going to completely break the wallet, and I'm sure if you look online, you can find a really good price for it too. So look to your local pro audio dealer as well. So that's it. The AT4047 from Audio-Technica. Check it out. All right. Let's get back into it with Langston Massengale here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, I want to go back and, and talk about uh, a little bit about what you were saying about, you know, being now 40, uh, you know, and I'm 47. I'll be 48 this November. Mm -hmm. Basically, what you described is what I've kind of been mentioning on the show periodically is the concept of the beginner's mind and always, no matter how experienced you may be, always be willing to learn. I really like that, that you mentioned that, that you said, even at 40, I'd be willing to go and, you know, intern for somebody just to continue to learn. You know, personally, you know, uh, for me, you know, I'm getting ready to go in September to mix with the masters with Chad Blake. Congratulations. Thank mm -hmm. you. Thank you. Um, a few of my friends were like, why are you going to go to that? That seems like something for beginners and i'm like are you kidding no that's not what it is at all <laughs> why is it that when it comes to recording and engineering there's a limit to how long it takes you to get good right like there's a point where you're just good right and yet when you're a musician there's never a point you stop learning there's musicians that go to clinics like if if neil pert gave a clinic right now people would go and they might be older than him Okay, they might be jazz drummers that just want to learn it. They want to hang with him. They want to absorb some of his energy. Like, why are we so withdrawn from the fact that we work on music? We're not professor emeritus of economics or something like that, where it's abstract and complete and it's 
mathematical and predictable. This is art. So anything that you can do to get better at art, no matter what age you are, you know, I mean, nobody can gauge when someone's maturity is supposed to be somewhere with the skill set, right? I mean, I'm an educator as well as a person that works on music, right? Like I've taught many people how to do this, right? And everybody's maturity and everybody's willingness and readiness to learn something is different. There is no such thing as the same singular timeline for every student, right? Like that by the time you're 12, you should know how to do this with a microphone. There's people that don't even know how to hold a mic that are 40 years old, 50 years old, and I've seen people do it on television and they still don't know what to do with it. They still don't know where to speak into it, right? And as a person that teaches, you have to be ready to know that some people are going to come to you lacking things, right? And as a student, you have to be honest with yourself and say, I lack this. Like, I lack the ability to hear this that these guys talk about, or I lack the ability to know what's art and what's pastiche, right? And sometimes having a... A person that's there, that's experienced, whether it's with music or the technical or the technical side of an art, is the best cheat code you can ever enter into your life, man. Like, so yeah, I mean, your friends can say that, but it's not like you can just get Chad Blake on YouTube on his channel and like pick his brain and he's going to spill his beans to you. You got to be there with the man and he's got to see you throw down. Just like karate and kung fu. You can't just go on YouTube and become a ninja. <laughs> you have to <laughs> you have to walk across the fire, man. Like that's the that's the beauty of art. Like unless you want this shit, you're not going to get it. And that's what I loved about it. Like unless you wanted it and you proved your want and your desire, you were never going to have those things. No one was going to share their secrets with you because you didn't prove yourself. And you're doing that. I'll give you, you know? a, another example. Well, I'll give you a good example. I um I've been friends with Andrew Sheps for some time and instantly, you know, really connected with him. And I uh, I went to a conference that uh, called the Potluck Audio Conference in Tucson that ha happened for a few years that our former uh, guest uh, Craig Schumacher put on. So I arrived in Tucson, went to the hotel. You know, I'm there at the hotel where they're putting on the conference, and uh, some somebody said, "Oh, Andrew's here," and I said, "Oh, okay, I'll go find him." And I went and found where he was at. He was in like some ballroom, uh, setting up for a presentation he was going to do. And uh, so I said, oh, I, I see you just did mix with the masters. And how was it? And he goes, oh, man, it was great. And he told me all about it. And I said, uh, while I'd love to see you do it, Andrew, I really would love to see Chad Blake. He goes, oh, you don't want to see my thing. He said, but Chad Blake, oh, my God, I want to see that myself. And to hear somebody like Andrew Sheps, who Andrew's very popular right now. A lot of people know who he is, and he's doing mm -hmm. a lot of, doing a lot of work and but when I hear somebody like that, that just validates it for me that, oh, this person doesn't think they're the smartest person in the room. They realize that there's so much more to it and that there's so much that everybody, so many, I, I, you know, I bet I could spend a week with you uh, and you could teach me so much about the tech end of it, the, the, the building part of it and many other aspects of it. And it would be, and vice versa. You could probably spend a week with me and there's so much that we could learn from each other. Yes. So that's just to kind of hit it with a hammer and, and nail it all the way in just to say, uh, there's always more time and always more people to learn from no matter what you think, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I watched some footage of Joel Hamilton with Universal Audio at his place at Studio G. And Joel is a, a user of Zulu, an endorser of it, right? And right after we'd visited him, he had done this video 
with Universal Audio with Fabrice Dupont and um, excuse me, uh, they did like this live session where they recorded and then they mixed and they used all this gear and everything else. And Joel went over like these different miking techniques, right? And for the drums. And some of the stuff was like, wow, that's different. And some of the stuff was like, I thought I was the only one that did that, right? <laughs> and one of the things that, you know, popped into my head is that sometimes these opportunities for us to go and learn from other people, to visit with them, to speak with them, is also a way for you to know what clan you belong to in the art world. You know, like there are people that are abstract artists and there are people that are classic artists in the classic sense. Like they draw faces and bodies and hands and feet and fruit, right? And then there's people like Basquiat that deform forms, right? And their artwork is just as beautiful but sometimes 10 times more striking and eye-catching than a classic artist, right? And so sometimes you got to know like, hey, man, I'm more like in the Basquiat Pollock world than I am in the Rembrandt world of painting or, you know, even even at the level of Van Gogh, you know, like I really don't like forms. I like stuff or I like three-dimensional art. And the same thing is true with audio. Like sometimes you just got to know like whose philosophy fits you better, you know? Like if you're trying to record squirrels catching nuts at the bottom of a tree, then it kind of doesn't make sense all the time to go and try to become the best drum recorder, you know, when you should really focus on nature and the techniques that they adopt. Or if you're trying to get better at electric guitars, well, find the guy that's great at that, you know? Or if you just like doing weird, wacky stuff in the studio, then get with like Eric Valentine or Joel Hamilton or any of these other great record producers that bend the rules to their whim, right? They're like airbenders. They're, you know, they're magicians, of a sort, and just accept that, like, that's your thing. You know, uh, there's far too many people trying to do everything with their career. You know, like, I, I'm i not saying I'm incapable of recording a symphony orchestra, but I like bands, you know, and I like heavy, over-the-top bands and hip-hop music and big drums and mean guitars and, and, and pop music with an attitude. You know, like, that's my thing. That's my flavor. And I kind of want to learn from the people that do that more than I just want to pick up information from anywhere that still may or may not get me closer to my goal, right? Like Chad Blake is a, is a bad dude, right? And is all about the tone, all about the the artifact, all about the the overshoot, right? And how to manipulate that into impact. And if that's your style, why wouldn't you learn from him? You know what I mean? Like that makes more sense to me than going some other direction. Totally. So I totally get what Andrew Sepsis is going. Because I mean, when you listen to this stuff and these guys do it, it's amazing. And if you had an opportunity to learn from it, I'd be right in line with you, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? it, it's funny. I When I think of Zulu uh, as a product, I think, man, that's something Chad Blake would be using. Well, you tell know? him that when you see him. I'll tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, send me with um, one. I'll give it to him. Yeah. You know, we might be able to make that happen. Um, <laughs> The the thing that 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 sticks out to me though with uh with it with Zulu per se is that it, it gives you the chance to revisit the entire premise of how you also record music. You know, we live in a mixing heavy world. And uh I think what's kind of bizarre to me as a guy that you know started out with the musicians from day one, you know, I never was a guy that got introduced to audio as like a static parties over kind of thing, right? Is we live in a world now where people don't even interact with the musicians. 
right? Yeah. They have no relationship with them. They have no connection to them. They simply are an email address, a financial instrument, and some files. That's their world, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But there is something to be said about being there when the band first comes in, helping them load their stuff in, hearing them rehearse, giving them any information that they may need, making sure that they're comfortable, connecting with them, spending that time, you know, like, People are always in a hurry to record people. People are always in a hurry to get rid of people. And I used to spend time with people. When I worked in Philadelphia, man, like we'd hang before the session, you know, and the guys in there like, yeah, that joint last night. You know, like, and you listen to the players talk and kibitz around and all of that, and you connect with people and you begin to learn them, right? And you begin to kind of bond and merge yourself into their energy. And like, that's missing, on so many levels now, right? And the same approach is true with audio. Like when you record, it's more like you're just trying to survive the process rather than it being something enjoyable for you. And I want people to remember that audio isn't something you have to worry about. It's something you work with. There's a difference. And a lot of the operating principles now are about being safe. You know, it used to be a world where if you were in the red, well, does it sound good? Now it's like, well, if you go past this point, you screwed up. (laughs) You know, like, that's it. You ruined it. And that's hard for me to address when, you know, like, I mean, unless you make some egregious error um, in a lot of other realms, that's not true. Like, I mean, if you happen to make the line a little bit fatter on a painting than you intended to, you might still be able to fix that, you know, or, or fake it and make that error look like it was intentional versus with, the way technology is right now, like you just screw up and that's it. It's almost worse than whatever, you know, penalty you incurred with tape. I mean, yeah, if you messed up on tape and you bummed the whole take, that's fine. But just to say you recorded it too hot, you know, there might be still be a way to save it. I mean, I read an article not too long ago that Janet Jackson control was cut something crazy, like plus 12. Really? DB to tape. Yeah, man. The whole LP. And you want to know why? It's because they calibrated the deck wrong. They thought they were hitting it plus six or plus nine, and it was really plus 12, okay? And what was impressed upon me is that if you could screw up that bad and make some platinum, classic, seminal example of the pop sound, it was like Janet Jackson's coming out party, you know? And Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis learned this technique not the plus 12 part, but the record the tape part from Prince, right? So when they were recording Janet Jackson, they had learned when they were at Paisley Park, I think that's where they were at at the time, maybe they're somewhere else, but they were with Prince and they had learned that distortion gives things definition, right? Especially the tape. So they were just trying to do the same thing with the drum machines and the synthesizers and the synth basses and all of that stuff. They really didn't have any live instrumentation on that album, not in the traditional sense. I mean, they were playing this stuff, but they didn't really have players on stringed instruments or drums, right? It was mostly synthetic. And they were just trying to give this stuff some soul, some attitude, some character, right? And what happened is I believe the machine was calibrated incorrectly so that when they were hitting plus six on the machine, they were really hitting plus 12. And yet (laughs) if you go back and you listen to control, it's glorious. You know, I mean, go and try to take a Lindrum right now with a copy of any DAW and try to make it sound like that, you know? That's, it's like one of those things where you just got to have it, you know, the right way. And they even had to hire a special mix engineer to deal with the really hot levels. But 
the sound was glorious. And I really feel like when you add in that component back into the recording process where even the recording medium, even the the equipment has a mind and a soul of its own that's going to forever be imprinted on your audio and you can actually expect it to react to you, the human input, that changes the way you approach music. So for me, as an engineer, that's how I was raised in it, was that that was part of the process, was like the gear was going to talk to you. It was either going to sound bad or it was going to sound great, but there was a bigger margin of great yet inappropriate. You know, there was like the naughty side of it. Where did you go to school? I went to Lemoyne College. And what did you study? Philosophy. Philosophy. No <laughs> shit. <laughs> right. I did uh, computer science as well as a, as a concentration, but really it was philosophy in a concentration in informal logic is what it's about. Are there any quotes that you live by that, that drive you? Um, well, I had a professor at Lemoyne College who was a bit of a prodigy. His name was James Lacey, Dr. James Lacey. And he was like, I think under 40, and he'd already been published by Cambridge. This guy was like crazy intelligent, right? And one of the things that he was talking about, this is like, I mean, he taught one-on-one philosophy. So he's basically like, you know, Hogwarts Academy, first class ever, <laughs> kind of like crazy <laughs> off the chain, brilliant guy, right? And he's like your introduction to the world of philosophy, whether or not that was your major or you're just taking it to get past it for your requirements to get a Jesuit degree, right? And Dr. Leahy says one day, you know, we're talking about Plato, okay, and Socrates. And he talked about that the minute you become a philosopher, you've signed your own death sentence. And what he meant by that was when you reject what society tells you, society's going to try to kill you. Not necessarily physically, even though sometimes that happened, you know, like they had to make Socrates drink hemlock. Um, but your soul, your spirit, your image, your reputation, the way you feel about people, the way people feel about you, like society will try to destroy that about you. And my reaction to that was atypical. I was just like, oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> you know, like, so this fake me that, you know, the world tells me I need to be, right? You know, this imaginary person that, you know, I've been raised to be, you know, like you can only be this when you grow up or you're never going to be that guy or, you know, only these people are ever in charge of this or only these people ever invent stuff, right? Um, I shed that in that moment in college, right? I rejected that crap that I was going to be limited by what people told me I could and couldn't do, right? I think it's a full circle for, thing for me to remember that quote. I'm glad you asked me that. But I'm glad that I became the person that I am rather than what society told me to be. I mean, here's a case in point, right? Like my family came to America in 1913 on my mother's side. And my grandmother, who was the daughter of my great-grandmother who came to America, was a tube engineer at General Electric during the Civil Rights Movement and was not ever considered brilliant in her own right was not ever considered smart, and yet she taught other people how to build tube equipment, and she had no college education, no formal training. She was just a brilliant, brilliant woman and was not going to be allowed to ever supervise other people by one of the more known names in society, you know, General Electric, right? It was like, oh, they're great. They make technology and stuff. Yeah, but they they were a product of their time, you know, like, you know, segregation was real even then, along with racism, which it still is now, but especially sexism, you know, a woman was never going to be as smart as a man. And so 
growing up, I faced the same forces that my grandmother, you know, my grandmother faced at General Electric. You know, like, well, these people go to NASA and these people are scientists and these people are technicians. And yet here I am, you know, and I say this in disbelief at times. I don't say this in a conceited manner. And yet here I am, the offspring of the offspring of this woman who used to build tube amps for General Electric. And I run my own company. You know, I talk to other people that run their own companies and develop their own technologies and, and innovate. And if I had listened to what people told me, right, if I wasn't willing to accept the death of my former self, I would not be the person before you. And I mean, it's, it's something that just continues to dovetail and spread for me, man. You know, like when I walked into that truck from SSL, they're like, oh, we well, you know about Zulu. And it's like, SSL knows about Zulu? You know, like we're not that big of a company. Our name, our brand is not that mature. I mean, we just released Zulu in February of this year. And yet companies like that, other peer slash competitors are well aware of this product. And it's very interesting to be in the position that I'm in as an inventor, but also as a business person, but also to reflect on these things that have been taught to me in reference to not only my education, but my upbringing and my ancestry. So it is, uh, that is probably the quote I carry with me all the time. You know, if you're ready to be a philosopher, if you're ready to look at the way things work and not be afraid to jump outside the box, then you have to be willing to let your former self die and take on the new identity that you choose for yourself. Are there any um, routines that you do on a daily basis that uh, keep you, I don't know, that, that, that get you set for your day? I always bring up the examples of some people like to go running, some people smoke pot. Well, some people meditate. My um, thing that keeps me sane is I pray, right? Okay. You know, I have two small daughters, 13 and nine, Nayila and Aaliyah. I didn't grow up in the most religious household. My mother was Roman Catholic for whatever that's worth, but I've kind of have found my way through life. But prayer has been one of the places that grounds me and keeps me focused in terms of none of this belongs to me, right? And so when you realize that whatever you have in your hands, at least in in that sense, you know, the religious Christian sense, right? That whatever you possess is really meant to be given away, mm-hmm. right? So for me... It's not like I need to acquire anything today. Like that's what every day is like for me. I don't need to go conquer the world or have this in my hand to know that I did something. It's like for me, it's like, who am I going to help today? Who am I going to bless today? Who am I going to be kind to? Who is my invention going to make happy, right? And so it encourages me to make new designs. It encourages me to perfect designs. It encourages me to revisit the way I work, how efficient my business works, how I deal with other people so that I can continue to be that person rather than somebody that simply looks at the dollars and cents of things and says, well, I need to make $20,000 this month, otherwise this. It's like none of this belongs to me. I only hold it for an instant and it's out of my hand, right? Now, I might have money, food, the love of people, material possessions along the way, but if you hold on to that, at least in my sense, then you're losing sight of what's important. And so I would not be able to do what I do if I had not disconnected myself from the acquisition of things. You know, like, I mean, to be an inventor, not the most uh, effective pickup line in the world. (laughs) If you get my drift, you know, it's not like you can go like, hey, I just invented. (laughs) You know, like that's what I do for a living, right? So, but to be able to disconnect yourself from if I don't do this, then I don't get this rather than 
this is my vision and I just want to see the end of this process. I want to see this come to life. That is more important to me. And that is more what drives me more so than like the after effects of that invention or the after effects of helping others or the after effects of when I sell this many or get these people to endorse the product. You know, if this company signs on or that business is interested in us, you know, like those sorts of things, like, I mean, they matter to me as a business person, Mm -hmm. but they don't, as a human being, they don't matter to me in the same way. I think that if anything, they're the side effect of what giving it away means to me, you know, because I mean, I didn't have to turn this into something I sell to people. I could have just given it to myself. I could have just kept it. I could have been like, no, I'm not sharing that with anybody. And because I decided to turn it into something that became the world's effectively. I mean, Zulus are all over the planet now. It widened my vision and widened my scope. And it also helped me to realize new things that I could be doing with my gifts and talents with this company and beyond. But to go back to my simple, plain Jane answer, right? I wake up every morning and I pray. And that's that's how I know my day has officially started is when I end that. You said that, you know, being an inventor is is a major part of your life, really. But what are the other things that you do daily that comprise your world? The main thing that I do besides Handsome Audio is I work as a record producer. I mean, people come to me with their projects and ask me to turn them into albums. So besides Handsome Audio, I work on music. And I um, also work on my own stuff, perform it, record it. But between that and Handsome Audio is a lot, plus I'm a parent. That ties up my time quite a bit. You know, there are times when even the record producer and the Zulu thing seems like it's a lot. But my day typically is checking in on my projects, making sure that they're progressing, making sure that my timetable is, is being met making sure that things are being done to the right accord. You know, a lot of the projects that I deal with involve session musicians. I don't necessarily just deal with the band, quote unquote, by itself anymore. I typically am asked to hire out for projects, right? So I uh, deal with many different people just for like the sake of one song. And when I find some free moments, uh, typically... I will check in at the factories that manufacture the different components and assemblies that go into making Zulu. And all of those factories are in Arizona. So I'm dealing with West Coast time, just like I'm dealing with you. Um, <laughs> I check in on, you know, I check in on the different uh, different entities and see where they're at, make sure that the box house is happy, make sure that the, uh, the cable assemblies are being done right, or the circuit boards are coming in the door, or the sub-assemblies from the electronics house are coming out okay, and where their scheduling is at. And when that's not happening, I'm back in the studio, or I'm planning on the next day. You know, I kind of have a thing where usually what I try to do is a six-hour workday when it comes to the stuff like Handsome Audio, right? I do about five to six hours of work total in a day, and then I'm done. And what I'm doing in the second half of the day is I'm planning the next day, right? That's how I help myself stay organized. It's a very small business with a lot of responsibility. And the same thing is true as a record producer. You know, when you're in the studio, there's long hours, there's uh, a lot of turnover and constant deadlines that are coming up. But I try not to overwork myself there either because I'm very sensitive to work effectiveness. You know, as far as the longer you work at something in the period of time, it can diminish the output, you know, versus if you simply do things in concentrated bursts and you give yourself a beginning and an end time, 
and then that's it, and you let yourself rest, you can do some pretty good things. I mean, especially when you get older. <laughs> I mean, when you're 40, you're not 18 anymore. You can't stay up for 13, 14 hours straight and expect everything to be gold. You'll miss stuff. So I try to avoid being in situations like that quite frequently, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. But my days are actually pretty busy with music industry stuff on the independent level, which is where I'm at, and then the music industry stuff with the tech world. I mean, that's pretty much a full day for Handsome Audio and Narrative Audio, my studio and production company. But as well, if it's not those things, it's my daughter's, you know, or personal time. Yeah. I try to make sure that there's time for that. I try not to make my entire life just work, 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 work. You have to breathe. I know that. I got so much grief from my nine-year-old. We were uh, on vacation in New Mexico, and I said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm off. I'm going to go to the studio, so hang out with grandma and grandpa. And my nine-year-old said, dad, tomorrow, no more working. We're on vacation. Stop going yeah. to studios. My daughters will take my phone. <laughs> <laughs> the world could be on fire. They don't care. They're taking my phone. That's their time. And I'm glad that they do that, you know, because it is hard for me to put it down and it will pull you away from anything that's in front of you. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing that, you know, I'll, I'll be sitting at a table with a guy with, you know, all sorts of credits to his name and he's fighting the same demons with his phone that I am. I'm just like, okay, I thought I had a problem too, but <laughs> you know, like, the you know the thing makes noise and you just have to look at it it's like a ray bradbury short story you know it's like you're <laughs> attracted to the buzz and so you have to flip it over and when you flip it over it lights up and then you get pulled into the magic portal of text messages you know so like i just like leave it in the middle of the table half the time if i can or people will take it from me and yeah. i'm good with that i'm like take my phone <laughs> hide my phone <laughs> you know so it is important to have that time with your family, you know, and the people that love you. You you got to put that time aside for them. Otherwise, you can't be effective because that part of you that needs that won't be satisfied, in my opinion. And so that comes out in your work. It always makes me think of Martin Sheen in the opening scenes of Apocalypse Now, where he says, you know, when I was home, all I wanted to be back in the jungle. And when I was back in the jungle, I wanted to be home. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of like that for me in audio i don't know if you experience the same thing but it's you know when you're in it you're like oh i'm here this is great but i do need to get home at some point and then once you're home you're like oh i gotta get back in the jungle it's amazing to note that there have been times in my career that they were so engrossing that the last thing on my mind was home there used to be a point in my career where it was like that where when i was in the studio the musicians were just so good the material was so phenomenal that home, food, the bathroom, like, you know, <laughs> anything, just you didn't care about it because you were just in your element. And that was a maturity thing, right? And I've learned that as a producer and as a professional and a practitioner, a master practitioner, if you will, you have to begin to insert into the relationships you build with people a certain degree of respect for your personal life that has no financial value. Meaning that no matter how much people pay me, I'm not sacrificing the time I have with my children. And if they really want me and they really want to work with me and experience my gifts and talents, they have to accept that. And there are people that are so worried about losing money and losing clients that they will never take that stand. 
But the thing about little kids and your family and your your spouse, your loved one, your girlfriend, your wife, whoever is important to you in your wife in your life, right? You don't get that time back. So no matter if you make thirty thousand dollars doing a band's LP, that can't buy that time back. You know, you don't get to repurchase your baby's first steps or that assembly that your daughter plays cello at. You don't get that time back. And so if you don't stand up for that, then no one's going to stand up for it for you. And you have to be able to assert that to your clients. Like, look, this is important to me. This is the time that I need for my family. And we're going to have to reconvene at this time. And if you um, at least follow the path that I'm on, if people give you crap about that, tell them, look, I can't budge. And if they're going to walk, show them the door. Be kind about it. Be professional. But at the same time, if they're going to sit there and treat you like that over your family, I can guarantee you that won't be the last time you butt heads with them about stuff like that. It'll keep coming up. There'll be other things that are going to manifest in that relationship that will impact you professionally that you will regret. And uh, it's a simple rule I have, family first. I don't lose clients like that, but I also don't get clients that don't disrespect me either. I don't get people that come in here and disrespect the time that I have with my family. I have clients that tell me, you know what? We've done this many hours. We want to make sure you have time with your kids. You know, that's something I worked hard to get, but I got it now. And that's important to, I think, most people that have children is to, I'm not going to tell you how to raise them, but it can happen for you if you make that your thing. You know, it can. I see guys that have the best credits in the world and they'll still spend time with their kids. You know, they still will make that time. Yeah. And if they can do it and they got Grammys and platinum records and money, <laughs> then, you know, cover band X is not going to interrupt my time or, you know, or whatever, you know, like they're, if, if important people can do it, then people that are not as important as those important people can do it too. You know, we can, we can do it as novices as well as people at the top of the chart. On that note, I'm going to go and join my two little guys in my life to make dinner. The munchkins. I love it. Good. Yeah. Um, Man, okay. I really, I really enjoyed listening to uh, to what you had to say. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Oh, you're awesome, dude. I hope you can kind of chop this together into something, even if you only get five minutes of dialogue out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Langston, thanks again. Uh, where are? G- give me a couple of websites where people can uh, find out more about you. The most important website that you can visit is going to be handsomeaudio.com, which is the homepage of Zulu the world's first passive analog tape simulator. And there you will at least find the information about the the, the design and the device and all the wonderful things that make Zulu Zulu. Uh, as well, if you are a member of Gearsluts.com, there are quite a few threads on there about Zulu that are worth reading. There are also a lot of hints and tips that are exchanged on there. In addition, if you have a Facebook account, there is a group on there that you can join by invite or by request called Handsome Audio Analog Renaissance, which is the power users forum for Zulu, which is where a lot of Grammy-winning and platinum engineers frequent and share tips on how they use Zulu. So just those couple of different resources right there will kind of really fill you in about some of my philosophies and also as well, really about, you know, this this wonderful little box of joy that's going to become a big box of joy soon. Um, 
to help you figure out if it's for you or not. That would be where you'd really get your start as far as understanding why I've started this conversation about analog tape and how we can reintegrate the soul and tonality of it into the recording and mixing process in 2017 and beyond. So handsomeaudio.com. Yes, sir. Once again, thanks for thanks for taking the time to chat with me, and uh, it's it's been a pleasure. Oh, anytime, my man. Thank you for the opportunity. Will you take care? Take care, man. Have a good one. Langston Massengale here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have him on, and man, the Zulu. Something that, you know, being a, an inventor of audio products, that's just something that is not in my wheelhouse. So I have great respect for anybody that does that. So, uh, yeah, cheers to Langston for coming up with that. Anyhow, we are out of time, so uh, you know the drill. Let's thank everybody, and let's start with, of course, Mr. Cliff Truesdell and Mr. Cole Williams and Mr. Chuck Smith for helping us out. And, of course, we want to thank uh, our sponsors, uh, Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, Lawton Audio, and Audio Technica. And thank you for your continued listenership. I appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.